Okay, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, verse 17, verse number 18. That's what I'd like to read this morning. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is our study of the internal battlefield, that which we have come to know personally, and come to know very uh, in a very familiar manner. So we're going to continue our study with that today, but first let's ask the Lord's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you as we start our uh, study here this morning, recognizing our complete dependence upon you. Truly that's the case. In every single aspect of life we are, though we act as though uh, we're not so often, Lord. Thank you for the fact that you do not change. And your mercy toward us is new and fresh, and with that we rejoice. But today, as we open up your word, we prepare ourselves to be uh, thoroughly examined by it, to have our hearts, our thoughts, our, our desires all put under the microscope of your word. And Lord, many times it's very convicting, many times it's correcting. And with that, uh, we submit ourselves to you, because we know that you love us. That's why you take us down these roads. I pray that uh, what we may see today will find quick application to our lives, that uh, these things will not be just said into the air, but they may penetrate our hearts and make us different, different, because we've been with you. So help us this morning. In our study of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the uh, areas I'd like to address uh, from this text I read to you, in verse 17 at the very end, in verse number 18 as well, uh, come with two words. The first word I'm going to uh, give you is the word licentiousness. That's a big $100 word, isn't it? licentiousness. The second word is legalism. Those two, when we consider what they are all about, licentiousness is as if there is no law, nothing binding, it's freedom. Uh, legalism is quite the opposite. And if we look in societal type of studies, we consider these two to be opposites. One extreme or the other extreme is generally how we map it out, but in spiritual studies, they are both in conflict with the Spirit. And this is important for us to see as we work our way through this passage. Uh, I plan to devote enough attention to each one of those concepts. Um, I've so constructed the message this morning to deal primarily with the first one, licentiousness, and next week to deal with the second one, legalism. But I believe this study is good for us. It's difficult, yes. It stretches us. There are times when I go through tough uh, uh, experiences. You have too. People would ask me, so how are you doing? You know, as a pastor, we have to say something positive, don't we? 
uh, generally to cheer them up so that they feel better about us going to it. But uh, uh, what I usually say is I'm sufficiently stretched. Sufficiently stretched. Um, I think this section is doing that to us. It's stretching us. And I think it's sufficient in that regard, too. Um, I use the phrase battlefield, and I have now for seven seven sermons. And to the eighth today, I call it still the internal battlefield uh, that takes place. And I I think it's a, a good choice of words to describe this passage, because I have never heard anyone say anything enjoyable about war. With battles, we, we look back on them and we say, well, you know, battles come from misunderstandings or, or from animosity. Battles can start from selfishness. Battles can start from brutality. Battles uh, come from a thirst for power, possession. Uh, battles have a host of causes, and most of them are all negative. Uh, battles bring damage. Battles bring pain and injury, heartbreak, loss, death. We know that. Battles are, are messy. Battles generally, if you look over the, the battlegrounds of this country and throughout the world, they generally take place in residential areas. We see scars left behind, not only on the ground or in the buildings or in the cities, but in the lives of the people where this wreckage takes so much time to either recover from or if there's any recovery at all, we at least come to this conclusion, things may never be the same. I don't think that description goes very far from the spiritual conflict we're studying here. The fact is, where the flesh operates, we find those same things. Misunderstandings, we find uh, animosity, we find selfishness, we, we find brutality, we see that thirst for power or possessions, we generally just label it under pride, don't we? When we talk about damage done because of the flesh, we know there's pain, uh, we know there's injury, we know there's heartbreak, we know there's loss, we know there's even death. We know that it's a mess. Where the flesh operates, there's a mess at work, there's a mess at home, there's a mess in the church, uh, there's a mess in lives, there's scars, yes, there's wreckage, yes, and most of the time we would say things may never be the same. Now, I have done much to show you in the last seven messages from the scriptures that the flesh is not your friend. It is not your friend. But as we turn to the other side of the conflict that we see here, it's a matter of the flesh that has set its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. We've found that where the spirit operates, there are serious changes as well. He does not seek for you to be at peace in the flesh. Do you know that? He does not want you to be at peace in the flesh. He is set against the flesh. He battles. And that's the term that we see here. The spirit against the flesh. He does inflict damage and pain and heartbreak and loss as well. And yet his work 
is that which is purely righteous. His work is exceedingly precise. What he cuts away, what he destroys, what he takes, what he uh, inflicts that, that we call pain, I think is proportionate to the degree that we grip those things of the flesh. The more we hang on, the more it seems to hurt to let go. No doubt, uh, you who have had toddlers in your home, you will recognize this kind of a scenario. The little toddler there finds something on the floor and picks it up. Now, you're across the room, and you cannot tell what that is. But they have found certainly it seems interesting. Uh, they seem interested in it. And since you can't see it, you decide, well, I'm going to check what that is. And the minute you get up, they notice that. And they pop it into their mouth with that look on their face. Like, you can't have this. They pop it into you. Well, that always leads us to our next step, right? This, this, this little precious life, you now have in a headlock. As you're fishing around in its mouth trying to dig it out, right? Sometimes you squeeze so tight you say, they'll never swallow it now. But that's the picture we generally see when we see that conflict start. They're defiant. And you are going to get that thing out. And it's an interesting little battle for a few minutes, isn't it? Of course, there's always relief when you get it out. It's panic when they realize it's now gone. They swallowed it. That's not a good thing. But I know that picture. I know that picture too well. I wonder how many times that might be a good depiction of the Holy Spirit work in our lives. We, in our defiant little looks, take the things of the flesh and pop them in our mouths and say, hmm. And he gets us by a headlock. And he's wrenching away, working on our mouth, pulling it out, and yet it's because he loves us, right? The moment, it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem that that's a good depiction of love, but that certainly is. Certainly is. Spurgeon said this, and I thought it was an interesting quote. The worst enemy we have is the flesh. Augustine used to pray, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. All the fire that the devil can bring from hell can do us little harm if we did not have so much fuel in our own nature. It is the powder in the magazine of the old man that is our perpetual danger. When we are guarding against foes without, we must not forget to be continually on our watchtower against the foe of foes within. It's a very precise comment in that. We have found that the weapons of the flesh are strength and wisdom. It uses the will and it uses glory. All those ingredients are in pride, of course. But sometimes we use those very same tools, don't we? We use our own strength, we use our own wisdom, we use our own will for our own glory. And that only plays into the strategy of the flesh. That's what I've been trying to communicate for so many weeks now here. Safeguard as we can. There's only one 
remedy in the Christian life for this condition. We must be walking by the Spirit. That's our mandate from verse 16, right? That's the one we mark, we highlight it, we circle it, we put it on the refrigerator. You put it someplace where you know this is what we're called to do. It's a command, walk by the Spirit. And simply put, and I say it a lot, so you're probably used to it. If it's a command and we're not doing it, what's that? Disobedience. We are told to walk by the Spirit. We are told to walk by the Spirit. People say, but I don't know how to work all this. Walk by the Spirit. It's not a complicated formula. It's just a simple phrase. Walk by the Spirit. You say, but that's challenging. Yes, it is. But walk by the Spirit. That's only one step, folks. And then the next step. And the next step. People want three steps. Give me a three-step plan. Give me a five-step plan. Give me a ten-step plan. Here's a one-step plan. Start here. Walk by the Spirit. And guess what the second step is? Walk by the Spirit. Guess what the third step is? Starting to get it? Walk by the Spirit. Because what does walking involve? One step after another. Walk by the Spirit. That's what the passage is calling us to do. Walk by the Spirit. And so what we need to do is is turn in those fleshly instruments that we've been using and trusting. Trust in the workings of the Holy Spirit instead and His work on our behalf. I, I realize that perhaps the hardest of the tools that we use to surrender is probably our will. That's probably our hardest one in those things that we use. I, I think at times we can easily admit to our weakness, can't we? Uh, even reclaim Scripture. <laughs> the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We say, whoop, that took care of that one. And we feel better. Or we could easily uh, uh, confess our lack of wisdom. That's an easy one to use, right? We could say, well, I don't know. That's a ready excuse. If you ever need one. Carry that one in your pocket. It works for almost anything. I don't know. We've seen that before, haven't we? I don't know. Well, that's the way we can eliminate the tool of wisdom, perhaps. But giving up the will. Boy, is that a struggle, isn't it? Giving up the will. We want to maintain control. We want ownership. Uh, We want to see our desires fulfilled. And then we come to the end of verse 17. And what does it say? So that you may not do the things that you please. So, oh, what's that? Well, when I looked at it in the Greek text, it, it renders itself this way. So that you may not be doing whatever things you may be willing. It's your will. Your will involved here and, and what you are willing, what you are desiring, what you please. And it says, you may not be doing. Now, the illustration I gave you last time involved a picture of a football uh, game. That's how I choose to explain verse 17. It's, it's uh, pretty... Um, Easy for us to understand. Two teams lined up against each other. 
two teams in opposition to one another, two teams with the same goal in mind, and that is to win. But to win, you've got to carry that little chunk of leather full of air all the way across the goal line on the other side, and the other team has the same desire to take it the other way. And we know how that game looks when it goes, and, and uh, when I talked about that last time, I said, where are we in the picture? Somebody said, we're the football. <laughs> we may not do the things that we please. The spirit lines up on one side, and we line up on the other side. I know, uh, the flesh lines up on the other side. I, I know that's an inferior illustration, a useful one, but inferior in some regards, because generally a, a football has no will of, of its own. And yet, at times, we attribute it to the football, don't we? Boy, it just popped right out of his hands, as if the football decided to do that. Uh, it, it took that funny bounce. Uh, the football decided to do that. We, we attribute things to a football that you know is not true at all. The problem with human beings, though, is that we do mix our will into the story, don't we? We get involved in the situation. Uh, we read often, like in Romans chapter 12, it says, to present ourselves as living sacrifices. You say, oh good, that's great, I can do that. I prefer it that way. But you know the problem with a living sacrifice on top of an altar? It crawls back down. It's not comfortable there, so it's going to move. Living sacrifices are hard. And this picture we have here of, we may not do the things that we please, well, there's our problem right in the middle of the picture. Now, I want to be more precise as I explain the rest of verse 17 to you today. Because verse 17, when it says, so that you may not do the things that you please, that is not an excuse for us to be totally passive in the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. Act as though this whole conflict between the spirit and the flesh is is not our concern, really. Uh, uh, we we pull out the little card. I can't help it. When we're caught in a situation like this, we 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 find it uh, a good excuse, perhaps, of acting as if we're neutral in the conflict. We, you know, we're carried this way, and that's not our fault. We're carried this way; it's not our fault. We we're just caught up as a bystander. That is not at all what verse 17 is saying. It's not at all what verse 17 says. We can go even so far to dismiss the importance of Christian behavior. We can go that far with it. Figuring, as some people do, that, well, being saved is sufficient for eternal life, so now I can just go on and live however I want. You ever hear of somebody like that? You ever know anybody like that? They wear the title, saved. I mean, they may even have a fish on the back end of their car put on there, that little picture or something. They, they, they may wear the t-shirts and they may sing our songs and all that, but you know the rest of their life doesn't look anything like a saved person. You look at that and you say, well, how can they live like that? They say, well, being saved is sufficient, isn't it? After all, this is perhaps their excuse. Someday I'll be conformed to his image when I get there, so I'm not going to have to worry about it now. 
The Bible has a term for that. It's called licentiousness. Licentiousness, by definition, is excessive freedom. It's lack of restraint. It's do whatever pleases you. That's licentiousness. Now, by definition, does not excessive freedom assume freedom? I mean, you can't have anything in excess unless you first have the first part, right? Excessive freedom assumes there is freedom in the first place. Now, when you read verse number 17 at the end, do you see anything that says you have freedom there? You may not do the things that you please. Go back to verse 16 for a minute. Our mandate. Our de- the demand of us to walk by the Spirit. That involves personal responsibility, does it not? We are told, commanded, imperative, I love that word. We are told to walk by the Spirit. That's personal responsibility. That is the issue of obedience or disobedience if we do not do it. The Spirit has never called us to licentiousness. The flesh does not give you excessive freedom either. This is where the mistake is generally made. We think that the contrast is that the Spirit binds you and the flesh frees you. Teenagers think that sometimes. They say, well, that the church is it's so restrictive, it's so Training on me, it, it, it controls. I don't like control. I want freedom. I want. I want to do my own thing. I was a teenager once, weren't you? Been down that road before. Will you consider rules to be your your taskmaster? You want freedom. You want to do your own thing. You want to say. We we assume that the flesh is our friend then because it's offering us freedom. Or so it appears to be. But the verse actually shows us clearly, we do not have this freedom. We do not have anywhere near excessive freedom in the flesh. Because here's the reality. The flesh brings you to bondage. The flesh does not seek your good. It seeks your death. Say, really? Romans? I've been mentioning this often. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. That's its avenue. That's where it goes every time. Do you call that freedom? I don't. Let me give you another additional bit of proof here. When it says you may not be doing whatever things you are willing to do or desiring to do. To be able to do whatever you want would necessitate to some degree you have sovereignty in that. In reality, there is only one who is sovereign. All else are subjects. There is one sovereign. Who is that? God is sovereign. We are not, nor can we be. Arthur W. Pink stated this, and I think it's well said. 
the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. Is that a description of us? I don't think so. You see, we are not free to do as we please. That's what verse 17 is saying. We are not free to do as we please. We're not even, uh, not even the excessive freedom of sin is freeing. I'm not trying to play on words or make this sound complicated. But too often we, we attribute the flesh to freedom, and that's not true at all. Many years ago, it's funny how time moves by so fast. Many years ago I thought that uh, having a goldfish in a nice round glass bowl was a neat idea. I grew up that way, and we always had uh, this little fish named Speedy who lived in the goldfish bowl and the coffee table in the middle of the living room, and Speedy would talk to us. Now, his way of talking was he'd, he'd spend 20 minutes putting bubbles all around the edge where you're sitting. He'd look at the bloop, 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 bloop. He'd put all these bubbles there, and then he'd start at the other end, and he'd start to pop them one by one. And we thought, well, that's his way of communicating with us. We didn't know what it meant, but it was cute to watch. And so I thought, well, my kids would love to have a goldfish. So I bought the bowl, and, and I had a goldfish, and I had only one son at the time, and I'll keep him anonymous so we could finish this story okay. Um, I, I brought the uh, fish home, of course, put it in this glass bowl, set it on the coffee table. I thought things would be great. An hour later, I look over there, and he's got a wooden spoon, and he is stirring that bowl as fast as he possibly can. That poor little fish. You, you look at it, and he's going around in circles in a blistering speed. And somewhere along that way, he flips upside down and he's dead. We figured it was a heart attack. We're not sure. He was just, boom, dead. And I wonder sometimes if that's a pretty good picture of what we think freedom is. We're in the flesh and we're going round and round and round and round and we think this is wonderful. We're in a bowl, folks, going in circles and it's going faster and faster and it's going to kill us. You ever felt that way? Just in it. We think it's a joy ride for a while. It's dangerous. Maybe that's a good picture of what it's all about. It's got at work. Got it work? I want to show you something. Go over to Philippians for a minute. You're in Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians, just right on the other side. Chapter 2 and verse 13. 2.13. It says, For it is God who is 
at work in you? Does that answer our question? Is God at work? Yes. Where is He at work? In us. What is He doing? Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Oh, He just nailed two of those instruments we like to use. Our strength. There's work. That's the word from the Greek. We pull our word energy from that word, by the way. He's working on your work. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He's working on your work. You've been using your strength your way and such, and he's changing that. He's working on your work. But he's also working on your will. He's working on your will. Do you know what he wants of your will? He wants your will to match his will. That's the work he's doing. And if you're sitting here saying, but I don't know if I want to have my will match his will, then there again the flesh is rearing itself up. Our will needs to be, it must be, conformed to His will. His will is right. His will is good. His will is gracious. His will is pure. His will is holy. Isn't that what you want? Why do we resist that so much? Because the flesh doesn't like that. But that's His work. Now let me ask you something, based on what we've already studied about the Holy Spirit, being God and all these other things, when it comes down to the flesh and God having this competition about working on your will, in the end, who wins? God does. Because every believer will be conformed to the image of Christ. Every believer will be. When we see Him, we shall be like Him, Scripture says. I hang on to that promise, and I will never let it go. I'm so thankful for it. We shall be like Him. God will succeed. He hasn't failed, and He never will fail. It says that He's at work on your will. I think it's important for you to know that. He's at work on your will. He's at work on your strength. He's shaping them, as it says in this passage, for His good pleasure. That's His desire. That's what He delights in. He delights in it when you become like Him. When you trust Him with your strength, with your will, with your way, with your wisdom. When you bring it to Him, He delights in that. Okay, I've been working on this verse 17 and explaining it to you you may not do the things that you please you may not do the things that you please it all comes down to a simple thing we're called to and that is to walk by the spirit to walk implies that you obey him do you i get personal all of a sudden don't i i have to ask these questions do we obey him To walk with Him means that we trust His leadership. Do you? To walk by the Spirit means that we are in fellowship with Him. Are you? To walk by the Spirit means that we seek His direction. 
do you? To walk by the Spirit means even to know how He works. Do you? To walk by the Spirit means to have confidence in what He is doing. Do you have that confidence? Do you have that confidence? I know these get rather personal, and and I address these to you today because the second side of this whole study in verse number 18 deals with legalism, and and that's uh, that legalism of the flesh is just as much an enemy as licentiousness that we've talked about today. Whose will are you going after? Is what we're studying today. But let's bring it down to the application. Really a direct application here. Pastors call for commitment. As believers, we need to bring things back sometimes to where they ought to be, right? You could use up all kinds of phrases here to say, it's time to clean up your room. (laughs) It's time to reset the button, to uh, refresh where you are. I don't know what word you want to use, but this is where I want to start. What does it take to consecrate yourself to the Lord? What does it mean to consecrate yourself to the Lord? Consecration, that's a big word, I know. It's in the whole family of sanctification. We, we use big words because we paid for that to go through college and use those. Sanctification, consecration, what are those things? Um, it's, it's the idea of giving something over or setting something aside for a special purpose. The opposite of the word consecrate is desecrate. But I found this one definition to be kind of useful. In the word consecrate, it says, given over exclusively to a single use or purpose. Given over exclusively to a single use or purpose. We are called to a single thing in verse number 16, are we not? Walk by the Spirit. This is uh, an unusual route for application, but I want you to use your hymn book for a minute and turn to a hymn, 597. 597. Somebody penned these words years ago, and no doubt they meant every word of it. You have sung this song many, many times, but let's walk through the words that you have said. And ask yourself as we do, did I mean that? Did I mean that? This is what consecration looks like. 597, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Ever prayed that prayer? Take my moment And my days, let them flow with ceaseless praise. You ever given him your days and your moments? Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Have you surrendered the hands yet? Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. 
say, well, how's that work? Is there not verses in Scripture that talks how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? You have beautiful feet? Those are the kind that carry the gospel wherever it goes. Have you given God your feet? Take my voice. Oh, we could use this voice for a lot of things, can't we? Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages. From thee. Oh, here it comes. Ready? Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Now, in case you're saying, well, that's all the pieces, look at the last couple of phrases. Take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Take my will. Oh, there it is. There it is. Take my will, and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine alone. It shall be thy royal throne. Is that your prayer? The person who first penned this, this is their prayer. Can you tell what that single thing was? That single one was that they had given themselves completely to? It's obvious, isn't it? So I call you today, as we all stand together, as we read these passages, as we see what God has called us to do, how that we cannot just do anything we please, but we do know what pleases our God. Is that what we shall commit ourselves to today? Consecrate ourselves to that great work He's doing right now in all of us? That we work and we will to His good pleasure. That's consecration. If that's where you are today as we go into prayer, you can talk to the Lord about that. If that's not where you are today, if right now you're angry as you can be, if maybe you're fighting this with all your heart, guess what? Talk to Him about that. He knows. He knows. And He's here to work. He loves you, folks. This is why He does His work. He wants the absolute best for you. That which will please Him as well. And He's called us to this life. So let's talk to Him. Heavenly Father, as a congregation, we walk before You right now, but even as individuals, we stand here. And You know our lives inside and out. There's nothing in our mind, in our hearts, in our hands, in our feet, in our will, there's nothing hidden from your sight. And you know very well what areas we have been fighting with, where we have cooperated with the flesh, where we have compromised, where we have given excuses, where we have walked the wrong road, where we have thought that we were enjoying 
the world and the things of this world and the flesh that so surrounds us. And yet you have just revealed to us that we are not free. Even in that realm, we are not free. But we are called to something better, something greater, something so wonderful. We are called to walk with the Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you impress that on our hearts. Impress it on our hearts as commitments are being made, as changes are being made, as lives will be lived differently today and tomorrow and throughout this next week. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that wherever the Spirit is at work, change is inevitable. And you are at work. And we thank you, Lord, for it. Do your mighty work in our lives. May we be different people. May it be so obvious that the world notices. But most of all, may it please you. May it please you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.